You're listening to the Discriminology Podcast, the podcast that arms you with the knowledge and the tools to dismantle discrimination. With me, one of your hosts, Malik Sila. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Discriminology. I am one of your hosts, Malik Silau, and I'm joined today by my co-hosts, Steve Kramer and Sydney Penn. To this point on our show, we primarily focus on the impression of Black people in the United States. On this mini-series called Intersectionality, we will analyze the interconnected nature of marginalized groups, specifically the LGBTQIA community on this episode. It is no secret that homophobia is prevalent in many minority communities. Questions that come to our mind today include how we address this, what are some of the common questions heterosexual individuals have, what are some commonalities between the Black community and the LGBTQ community, what are the differences, and helping us address some of these questions today is special guest Andrew Shallow. He is an MFA creative writing student at the New School and the host of his own podcast called Generation Shallow. His TikTok account is under the same name and it's meant to examine the mental health crisis currently impacting the LGBTQ community. Please welcome writer and cultural critic, Andrew Shallow. Thank you guys for having me. Excited to be here. Oh, it's our pleasure. Andrew, since this is our first time addressing issues that plague the LGBTQ community in depth on this show, I mean, we've, we've mentioned it in passing, but, but never super in detail. Uh, we figured a great place to start would be addressing some of the common questions and misnomers that surround the community. Um, and going across your profile, the first thing I noticed is that you had your pronouns, and this is something that's become more common on social media and on business profiles, et cetera. So mm-hmm. can you just speak to, I guess, the importance of declaring your pronouns, and is it insensitive to not have your pronouns listed? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's insensitive to not have them. I mean, obviously, we want to live in a world where people, you know, more and more people are kind of like used to this idea that gender isn't, uh, you know, a binary construct, meaning there isn't just two genders. And, um, you know, the pronoun thing is mainly to kind of be inclusive to those people who, you know, don't exist in that binary. So even though I personally exist in a gender binary as you know, I identify as male and and that matches with the, um, you know, genitalia I was born with. Uh, just because I am, you know, cis and I fit in that binary, it, me doing the pronouns in my bio is kind of a way of just kind of holding space for anyone really who may exist outside. So by everybody declaring their pronouns, I think it kind of sets the stage for this new sort of era that we're in. I mean, obviously it's not going to happen overnight, but I hope that, you know, as the years go on and more and more people start to, you know, begin to learn about the gender binary and the ways that we can deconstruct it, it'll become just like a normal thing. What are some of the other pronouns we should be aware of? Uh, So there is, you know, there's like a whole view of, pronouns. You can basically like make up any pronoun that you really want. Uh, The pronouns that I think are the most common are he, him, she, her, and then they, them. And a person can identify with more than one, meaning that, you know, I can, I, if I, if I was someone that was identifying as he, him, I could, if I felt like it fit into, you know, my personality and my gender expression, I could also identify as they, them, if I just wanted to be like nonconformist, you know, and non-binary. So a person can actually do both. I was going to ask you about that. So they, them basically just removes yourself from the binary terms. Right. It's kind of looking at it like, I mean, because if you think about it, and this is something that like, I didn't just like wake up one day and understand this totally, you know, like I understand why it's going to take a while for people to kind of come online with these, you know, ideas about centered around uh, deconstructing the binary. Like, I really understand why it, you know, may be confusing for people. So I really had to do my own research. And like, when you think about it, um, 
gender is something that we made up, that humans made up. You know, like if a tiger is attacking you, you don't say, oh, that's a female tiger. You know, if you go to the zoo and see an animal, you don't say that's a female or a male, you know, lion. I mean, you might, but the point is, is that we kind of uh, designed gender really to fit into societal norms and, you know, to fit into this binary of boy, girl. So, you know, it kind of goes into the whole thing of sexuality too, because sexuality can become a binary. So like the sexuality binary that I think we're most accustomed to is gay straight. You know, a person can't be, it's like, it's taboo if you want to be fluid and you kind of want to be undefined. You know, I guess the they, them gender pronouns is the equivalent to someone being sort of sexually fluid. It's just saying that like, I don't subscribe to uh, these rules, you know, that society really made up. I hope that answers your question. (laughs) No, it it definitely does. I I was just thinking because you brought up sexuality too. So is that better explained as being on some type of a spectrum as opposed to being this or that? I mean, I think so, but there are many gay people who will tell you that it's not, who will tell you that like, you have to be either 100% gay or 100% straight. You can't exist in the middle. So like, this isn't just a problem for straight people. This is a problem for everyone. And we actually, you know, we all have the binary. We were all raised in this binary world, you know, where you couldn't have, um, you couldn't be a third of anything. So, you know, I believe that gender and sexuality exist on a spectrum. Um, There's plenty of medical research that indicates that that's what, you know, is going on. And there's even some research to suggest that sexuality is a lot like our taste buds, which can uh, actually change over time. So if you grew up as a little kid and you hated mac and cheese, and then you grow up and you realize that you start to like it or vice versa. You, you're a kid and you love mac and cheese. And then later on, you decide as an adult, you know, I don't like this anymore. I want to try something different. It's the same kind of thing. We just put these really strict rules on uh, humans <laughs> that make them have to, you know, feel like they have to choose uh, like a jersey. You know, like you're going to be gay and then that's going to be your thing. And you're going to stand over there and you're going to be straight and you're going to be. You know, so it's like all these different rules that we um, designed, I think we really need to start to look at ways in which we've created a a black and white world when most of us really are gray. I've actually never heard sexuality compared to taste buds. That's, That's a really interesting connection. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of how I look at it. I forget where I originally saw that theory. Um... But yeah, I think that makes a lot more sense than people saying, you know, and and to say like, you know, you were born gay, like you always knew it. I I don't think there's, I mean, for me at least, I think when people say that, like, if I was to say like, oh yeah, I always knew I was gay. If I was to say that, I'm kind of like erasing um, that transitional point in my life where I kind of was, you know, you're like becoming, you're not just like, one day waking up at 11 years old being like, oh, this is who I am. It's just like everything else, you know, like it's gradual, it's slow. And I think it kind of leads you to that kind of question of like, you know, are we born this way? Are we, I mean, I think it's, I think it's probably a mix of both. I think it's, I think it's gradual. I think it can change over time. I think some people like they're fully on one side of the spectrum. They're fully straight. They're fully gay. Um, But I think when we kind of say that that's how everybody is supposed to be, then that's like totally discrediting, you know, a large portion of people. Just expanding on what you said a little bit more, do we have any say or choice in our sexuality or is that dictated by genetic makeup or whatever we're predisposed to, or are there environmental factors? Like what does popular culture say? What does science say? Because I think it's ambiguous for a lot of people. Yeah, I think it is too. I mean, I'm someone who like, I've only ever been with guys. I can only, I really only see myself with men for the rest of my life. Like I don't see myself dating women yet. It's interesting because I find myself being like a bi, like a bi advocate in a way, because I think that, you know, we're so used to 
like I said, creating these like rigid uh, rules for ourselves. And I think, you know, it depends on the person. I think for some people, you know, I've had friends, you know, who have dated men and then who realized later on that, you know, they wanted to try something else. And so I think it depends on the person, you know, like, and I think there's some people that just don't want to try anything else and, and like what they like, like me, you know. Um, but to say that that's how everybody is supposed to be, or most people, I think most people actually are somewhere in the middle. And, you know, it might be that, um, it might be like their taste changes over time. It might be that they didn't have the freedom to kind of look outside the box, you know, because of the environment that they were raised in. Um, and I think that's why you have many people who, I think, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I can't really speak to it because I don't, I don't like anything other than men, but I do understand why some people will find themselves in a straight relationship, get married, um, and then years later discover that they're gay. You know, like I, I also see that side of it. So I think it has to do with a lot of different factors and I think it really depends on the person. I think that is um, to what you said, Andrew, about people kind of us being socialized and um, taught and, and, you know, living in a society where, you know, there is a binary and to, it's taboo and it's hushed to be um, exp explorative or, or experimental and anything outside of that. So I think when people have people, a lot of times, I agree with you that the, as, as far as the spectrum goes, I agree that most people are somewhere in the middle because sexuality is a fluid uh, concept. And I think that it is, it, it, it does evolve and it does change for some, for the most people, for some people it doesn't, for most people it does. And so I think what happens is that people have that realization that um, at some point in their life, um, you know, for me personally, I was in, um, in the, in the closet for most of my life. I knew that I liked women from a child, as a child, I, I realized that, but I was in a, a straight relationship. I had a boyfriend and I, I remember having that realization that like, oh, you know what? Yeah. The sexuality does kind of, it is kind of fluid. Like I can't really explain how I feel or what I feel right at this moment. Like I can't, I don't really have the words. Like I can't really explicitly explain what it is, but I know that it's, I feel this and I don't feel that and et cetera, et cetera. And I think a lot of people have that moment and they're worried they realize that like what they've been accustomed to or used to has changed. And like it, and and it, and it, and then when I open that opens that door in their mind, it's then they're able to explore and realize what they also like or what they might like instead, you know, et cetera. You see these stories, and you know, I've even seen this throughout my own experience. Where, let's say, a little boy decides to play with dolls, or he tries on girl clothes, or or things that are outside of the construct of being a boy in our society, and parents are pressured to curb that behavior because it may influence their sexual development or their sexuality. Is there any validity to that or is that just ignorance? Um, so I definitely think um, as far as like th these ideals of um, how we mold and influence uh, children's, you know, sexual growth and sexual health, et cetera, identity, um, I personally do think a lot of a lot of it, a lot of the ideals and the quote unquote rules that we follow are 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 bred in ignorance. Um, and I do think that this it 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 does more harm. It does it's harmful in my opinion. And you know, I like even even the way you asked the question, like the idea that it would be it's it's perceived to be wrong or negative for. Um, you know, a young boy or a child boy to be playing with dolls because that in some way is going to influence, negatively influence their sexual identity. You know, like even that that idea in itself, you get what I'm saying, is, is harmful. Like, why is it that we as, that as a society, we associate boys, males, right? People who are born male, doing engaging or participating in activities that we deem to be feminine or related to, or associated with females to be a negative thing. Like, why is that? Why is fostering a young boy's, you know, interest in something that we deem that we, again, Andrew said it, we make, we make these rules up. We made these things up. Why is it that we, that that's the association that it's negative or that's something that's not going to, it's going to hinder their identity or they're going to grow up to be gay. Like all these things being, being negative, um, negative things is, is I think harmful. 
I just think it's so funny because I think that when you really take a step back and, and look at it, like it is just a dress, you know, like I understand, I guess I, I, I try to understand why that might be like, uh, you know, surprising or off putting or, or controversial or whatever, but like, isn't there, it just seems like there's so many more important things and to find, I mean, even just like Harry Styles wearing a dress, it becomes like such a thing. And it's like, it's just a piece of clothing, you know, like if you really take a step back and like almost disarm it. Um, it, should, it shouldn't be that deep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's really not that deep. <laughs> right. Like it's just, I mean, but we make it, we live in a world where it's like such, it's still like such a big deal. I hope we can get to a place one day where it's just like people don't even you know, blink. It's just, uh, yeah, it's weird. The whole clothes thing is weird because again, like we made all that up. Like when you, when you really step back and think about it, you know, like the reason I'm wearing the clothes that I'm wearing right now, (laughs) it's like, because I was born with a penis. Like that's quite bizarre if you really think about it. Yeah, I definitely think that there's been, um, in a lot of ways, a monumental progress, even just in this generation, uh, like, and even in my short lifetime, um, I've seen progress in the communities that I that I'm from, um, and it's just you know small things, small changes, but that were so significant. Um, for example, like my my um, earliest memory is I grew up with um, a, a transgender. Uh, boy in my community who went to my school and all of that and like that was my my first exposure to to the LGBTQ community at a very young age I always remember the faculty and staff being very open and understanding and normal and trying their best to normalize it to a point where the students around him and the students around us you know it was normalized it was it was it wasn't really a thing and skip forward to 2014 my high school that I graduated from um I'm sorry it was like 2015 actually the principal at the time um changed the gown wearing so like you know historically and when I graduated girls wore purple gown uh, white gowns and the boys wore purple gowns at the graduations um and so the principal in 2015 change that rule you know to because that was that completely excluded the lgbtq community kid you know kids who are transgender and non-binary um from having to choose which color to wear at graduation uh they got rid of that and now all the students wear purple and so you know they mm-hmm. kind of like doing things like that you know to just to, to shed light on an address and try to to be inclusive and make actual change that's inclusive so i i'm, I'm glad you answered first because i was i was going to ask you both how much progress you think we've made in this area? Because I've been I've been working with teenagers my, my whole adult life, the last 30 years. And certainly when I first uh, started, even speaking about the LGBTQ community was was taboo. I mean it wasn't it wasn't addressed. And now, you know, here we are. I'm I'm in a high school, I'm I'm in a pretty conservative area, you know, on Long Island, South Shore, Long Island. But we have, we have, um, in from my perception, we seem to have made big strides. Kids have become way more comfortable telling their teachers which pronouns to use. I get, I get emails from kids now, and their peers, at least their friends have no problem with it. At least they, they appear to have no problem with it. So I guess I'm really kind of asking, you know, how how much generational do you think it is? How much progress do you think is, is being made? Because from from my standpoint, working with teenagers, I find that the teenagers now are far, far more accepting of the community than they've ever been. That's not to say that there's not horrific things going on. I'm not saying that. I'm, I'm saying that that more and more kids are more and more accepting and more and more kids at a younger age are becoming more comfortable with with identifying and, and telling the adults in their lives how they're identifying. So I was wondering what your guys' take on that would be. Yeah, I just in just in our school that there are there are universal bathrooms now. I mean that that whole fight which was one of the more bizarre fights that I've listened to in the United States. When did that happen? When did what happen? I would have never thought. There's gender neutral bathrooms all over school, public schools. Yeah. No, no, I'm not. I'm not saying no. It's just uh, Mr. Kramer alluded to. 
I'm surprised Mr. Kramer alluded to, you know, uh, where we live is relatively conservative. I'm surprised. At, you're surprised that you're surprised that Farmingdale did it at, that at our specific school, not at the need or how or its necessity. Um, I'm surprised at that progress. Listen, there's no question that when they did it, there were plenty of people that had a problem with it. And to listen to them, like, I, I cannot believe that this is something that you guys are hung up on. Are you watching other people go to the bathroom? Like, this is what you're talking about, you know? It's just, it, it, I don't know. The, the whole thing was bizarre. But yeah, so I, I believe, I'm not positive about this. I, I would definitely have to be fact-checked on this. But I'm rather certain that schools were mandated to do it. Um, I think I'd, I'd really have to check on that, but regardless, uh, we're doing it and, you know, it's, it's, and I think Andrew said it before, I think it, it's, it's the more normalized it gets, the more accepting it gets. Now I still hear, you know, kids using gay as a, as a slur all the time, you know, and that's, that's, that's still one that, you know, that, that, that's always killed me. But, you know, as, as far as, as far as the systems, I guess making making attempts to uh, to um, make people people feel more comfortable, I think the systems are are doing a better job as well. Sydney brought up an interesting point before, like the language we use and how it's presented, and I kind of see how it intersects with how blackness is seen. How do we combat the perception that? it's bad, to, like it's a it's a variance from the norm and then it's bad. Why can't it just be like, why is it automatically deemed bad just to be different? Um, the same thing with blackness where it's like, if you look at the language that, that surround black people and, and culture and, and media, it, it it's kind of leads to, oh, this may be a bad thing or this has a derogatory thing or a negative result or a negative implication. So I guess, how do we change the language? Well, definitely by having podcasts like Discriminology, I think, for sure, listening to things like this. Shameless plug, huh? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it'll happen with time as, I mean, I hope this doesn't sound too harsh, but I think, honestly, as more baby boomers die and more, you know, people, more younger people come of age, we're going to be living in a world where, you know, we're going to be calling the shots pretty soon. So I hope at that point, you know, we'll have a better understanding and a better self-awareness um, to really look at these issues in a new way. Because the reason it's changing so much is because of young people. It's because of Gen Z. It's not because that all of a sudden older people, a light bulb went off on their head. I mean, that might have happened, but... Um, I think that's irrelevant. I think it's young people who are responsible and who are going to be responsible moving forward, uh, I hope. I think the one thing I'll challenge there is, I guess I'll only speak from my experience because I have plenty of friends that are my age or younger that are wholly homophobic. And I know people that are older than me that are a lot more accepting. So, I mean, mm -hmm. I agree with you in the sense that there's probably an age correlation, but... I'm not sure if waiting for progressive generations automatically will solve, you know, social issues. I think there still has to be a lot of work that's pushed behind it and, and totally. changing a lot of, you know, ideas and structures. But yeah, yeah, I, that's probably the only thing I would challenge. I think that, you know, it's interesting because I think it has a lot to do with this, not so much maybe the, you know, group of people, but the access to information via technology so it's not so much that this generation of young people today was like born progressive but i think it has more to do with the fact that they have more access to information that um you know human beings never had before so they're able to empathize more and i think it's that empathy key obviously there's still young kids you know going around saying horrible things but if you look at the demographics, I think there's way, I think the good outweighs the bad in that case. But I think it has to do with, you know, um, the internet. I think, uh, I think Andrew's making a great point is that the more people are exposed to what is normal or to what does exist, the more those things just become normal. When I was growing up, 
you know, there weren't there weren't really many gay icons, right? And there weren't really many famous people or transgendered people or 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 gay people that that really had platforms. But I think so many more uh, people have platforms now where the young the younger people, the younger generation, even some of us old people, um, get to see so many more so many more people in just normal, regular, everyday situations who just happen to be somebody else. I think that that's that's really one of the things pushing. Of course, it's work. You know, it's not just waking up one day. I don't think that's really uh, what the point is. It's work. It's exposure. It's constant messaging. And it's constant challenging. It's like anything else. It's it's like when we challenge, you know, any racist, it's you you have to challenge people and, and you have to challenge their beliefs. It's definitely a lot of work, but I, I guess Andrew did bring up a good point in terms of access to information and, and Mr. Kramer, as you said, normalizing and I guess exposure to things that are outside of your own cultural norms, whatever your whatever your cultural norms may be. Um, Andrew, I had a question in terms of uh, continuity within the LGBTQ community. Certain things I've heard or assumptions made about other demographics, if you're not a part of it, that you there's an assumption that this whole demographic thinks, feels, believes the same things. And obviously that's not the case. So can you speak to any, I guess, rifts or frictions mm-hmm. of ideas and, and principles that are within the LGBTQ community? Oh my God. Yeah. I feel like this could take up a whole episode, just this one question. But <laughs> a High level overview, since this is like the one-on-one intro episode. Right, right, right. So, I mean, just like, you know, everyday people, uh, gay people and, and LGBT people are not a monolith. So there's a lot of conflicting ideas, you know, and there's a lot of conflicting views. I mean, there's a lot of racist people in the LGBTQ community, you know, like there's a lot of sexism in the LGBTQ community. So like you have all the, all the problems that exist outside of the LGBTQ community exist within it. So, you know, things like racism and class disparity and ableism and, you know, all those things. But I think I can really only speak to um, gay men. And I'm curious, uh, to hear what Sydney has to say from her perspective. But I think that in terms of gay men, they are largely, largely um, divided. Gay men, like I do not have many gay male friends. I never really got along with other gay males um, unless I was like sleeping with them, which is another story. But I feel like there's a competitive nature, just like straight men, you know, it's the same animal. So all that testosterone and all that uh, masculinity and all that aggression, that's there. It's just wearing nail polish. You know what I mean? So it's like, we're really not that that different from straight people, but I feel like everyone likes to see us as one big happy family. And and that's the way that the media portrays it. You know, like it's pride. It's, you know, these young kids um, that are growing up in high school now and it seems like oh yeah they have so much they have a you know such easier time coming out yeah the coming out is one thing but then when you when you move to a city especially the kids on long island you move to the city and what happens is you're in, you're indoctrinated into this community specifically with gay men um in metropolitan areas where there is a lot of generational trauma um because of things like the aids crisis and you know just homophobia in general in our society it sounds like homophobia is just you know kids saying gay as a slur but what that really does is it actually like had for their entire life so you have like 60 year old gay men walking around right now who are like messed up from you know our society so i think that and it creates those frictions between men. And I think a lot of men, um, you know, they get jealous of each other. They get uh, competitive with each other, especially among friend groups. I know that I've had several experiences where like, you know, I have a best girlfriend and she has another gay friend and he will, you know, there'll be friction because it's like you're competing for that, um, 
you're competing for that love or whatever. I think gay men are constantly their whole lives um, sort of walking through life on high alert because, you know, there's a very dark period in a person's life when they do realize that they're gay. It's not just like, oh, I'm gay. You know, it's like, oh, I'm, you know, because I don't see any way out of this. So I think there's a, a lot that goes on in terms of like the mental health um, aspect of it that our community is, I mean, our society is really just like brushed over. Um, and, I, you know, in terms of like, yeah, we have made a, a ton of progress, but we really have only seen the tip of the iceberg because the larger society really has no idea what's going on inside actual gay communities um, in metropolitan areas and in rural areas around the country. Like, um, but I'm curious to hear what Sydney has to say from her perspective on that. So, okay. So obviously, yes, Andrew's right. There's there's racism, there's homophobia within the community. There's transphobia um, within the LGBTQ community. And like a a, a lot of the things that I've experienced personally or that I've seen um, because there's privilege. Like I, in my my position in the community, you know, I, I, I stand at a, at a place of privilege that a lot of people in the community don't, you know, don't, don't have the same experience of like me being, um, a woman, cisgender woman who, um, is quote unquote, what they call, you know, straight passing, you know, I'm a feminine female, this, that, and the third, you know, I look quote unquote, look straight like people. So, you know, and it's, and it's also more accept widely acceptable by society, you know, for women to be gay than for men to be gay, et cetera, what have you. So I've, the, the things that I've seen or experienced from, for females in the community is that there's definitely, and for males, actually, there's definitely, um, a lot of like stigma and taboo around bisexuality, you know, the B L G B T Q and, this idea that like for females, you know, bisexual women somehow are comp- are somehow seen as, you know, more promiscuous and more wild and, you know, greedy. I've, I've heard all types of nonsense surrounding it. And like, you know, the men just can't be bisexual because like Andrew alluded to before, like there's just a binary, like you're either gay or straight, like you can't, there's no like, what bisexual man, like what that doesn't make any sense. So like, I, I see a lot of that within the community. Um, a lot of, you know, gay women that bash bisexuality. Uh, it's, and it's really, it's honestly, it, it's, it's so strange to me to like see it. Cause it's like, it's almost like an alternate reality. It's like, how, how are these things even existing when like all of us have such a this one thing in common, but then like Andrew said, like it's pe- we're still people, it's we're still humans, and like there's still stuff that's that goes on that's lingering from historical stuff that's happened and trauma and you know racial um, racial issues and cu- cultural issues that clash even within a community of people that have something in common with each other. It's very interesting and weird in a lot of ways. Um, just sitting here listening to the both of you kind of talk through, I guess, those internal rifts and how society sees the community and, and how the community interacts with each other and, and society alike. I I just hear some of the same premises and positions and arguments that I, I feel like we've discussed on the show to combat systemic racism or speak to issues that are within the Black community. It, it's just interesting because I myself at least for this conversation, sit from a place of privilege, because even though I am a black person, I'm, I'm a male and I'm a straight male. I guess, I guess it's just really interesting to hear another oppressed group speak to their own unique issues. It wasn't really a question. I, I was just saying that I, I feel like I'm learning a lot just by sitting here listening to the both of you speak. Yeah, I, I feel like, I mean, I don't know, but I think that racism and homophobia and sexism are like all three heads of the same animal, you know, like of the same monster in a way. Like I think oppression, it all kind of connects. And I think all roads kind of lead back to, you know, white supremacy, which is the, you know, the reason why we're even talking about any of this stuff. So yeah, it's totally interesting. On that topic, where does homophobia stem in the black community, because my experience, there's very overt and aggressive homophobia. 
within my own community, just growing up and, you know, being around the neighborhood and, and seeing certain things and hearing people speak a certain way. Why, why do you think that's so overt in our community? It's such a complex, that's such a complex answer. Cause there's so many reasons why so, so much historical like trauma. And, and, and so I think definitely where it stems from, like the beginning of it, um, definitely slavery and, um, you know, the way that homosexuality was weaponized and demonized um, during slavery, you know, it, and I'm, I'm, when I say this, I'm speaking for uh, men, like homosexual, homosexuality and homosexual men. Um, and, and, and this idea that, you know, enslaved men um, experienced, you know, horrible uh, things like sodomy and, and sexual assault, you know, they were, it was a part of the uh, punishment that was inflicted on slave enslaved men by the slave masters. And so that, that was a way that kind of used homosexuality as a weapon and, and demonized it and made it um, correlate. And it was correlated with, with that, with those acts. And so I think um, this, that those practices eventually evolved, um, you know, into this mindset that for black men, you know, the homosexuality is, you know, it's seen, it's, it's honestly seen as disgusting. Like that's, that's what it's associated with because of this, of the post-traumatic slave syndrome, as we call it, PTSS, post-traumatic slave syndrome. And the idea that, that, that is the, that's the beginning of it. And so that's the association and that ends up being the construct and the mindset for generation after generation after generation. And so to engage in those disgusting uh, you know, sinful, we, we, we use all these words, all these terms to describe it, acts is now taboo. And then now people are, Black men are, you know, doing it in hiding and you know, in the closet and, and so, so on and so forth. And so I think that's, that's kind of like where it kind of started from a societal standpoint um, and then morphed into this snowball of a monster that we see, you know, today. This obviously applies probably to the entire LGBTQ community. But as we know, at least in American Black culture, the church has a very strong presence in the community. It's kind of the center of, of most Black communities in the United States. How does the church, I guess, shape the perception of the LGBTQ community? Why is it that, I guess, from an outsider's perspective, that the two don't coexist or can't mix? educate me in, in that regard in, in terms of the relationship with the church. You know, I didn't grow up in a religious household. So a lot of these things are just things that I've seen um, and, you know, been heard from, from family and from friends who did grow up in the church. I did not grow up in the church. However, um, I do have family members that are very religious and, you know, experience these things as well and go through these things. And, you know, it's kind of the idea that, again, people in the church, Black people, um, and their interpretation of the Bible and, you know, what the Bible says and, and how they interpret it. And, you know, this idea, again, that it is, it, whether it's explicitly stated or not explicitly stated in the Bible, I don't know because, again, I'm not a religious person myself. Um, but the idea that the Bible, whether it's explicitly written or not, is interpreted by a lot of Black people um, to be, again, man with woman and anything other than that is wrong. God, that's not acceptable. Homosexuality is a sin and that's it's in the Bible and this is, that that's what it says. And so that's what it is. Andrew, do you have anything to add to that? I mean, you can't necessarily speak on the church's presence in the black community, but, you know, the Christian church um, and, and other major faiths throughout the United States kind of have the same implications on other members of the community. So um, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, well, I think this is why I say that all roads really go back to white supremacy, because if you if you really look at it, I mean, why? I think the question that I'm most interested in um, is why Black communities have had to rely on the church. And that has to do, I think, I mean, I want to know what you guys think, obviously, to do with oppression, you know, like that was like their lifeline. If America is is going to give people all over the country that lifeline and that safety of the church, you know, they're also doing so at a cost for, for LGBT people because they're oppressing people in, uh, you know, while they're doing that. So it, it's like, I don't know. I think the church is, 
you know, for everyone, I think the Catholic Church is brainwashing people into uh, believing certain things. And I really do believe that just like, you know, the prison industrial complex, I see uh, the church as its own sort of, um, you know, business of oppression, I guess you could say, because, you know, they do make a lot of money off of oppressing people and have for years. So I think it's interesting. Um, and I think that's really, you know, another big root cause for a lot of these issues that we're talking about. I mean, name something that we've discussed that I, I think the church isn't responsible for. Like, I think they're pretty much responsible for everything that we're discussing. And I think it goes back to, you know, the progress that we're making. I think the progress that we're making has to have something to do with the fact that people are just less religious than they than they have been in probably ever before. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think the church is largely to blame for a lot of what we see in terms of oppression with LGBTQ people. Mr. Kramer, um, hearing these, hearing this feedback, do you have anything through a historical lens? Because Andrew kind of just referred to the decline of, I guess, religious households or, or religion's presence in, in the dominant culture. So I was just curious to, to hear what you had to say from a historical lens. Yeah, I, I think it's important to distinguish between the Catholic Church and the American Church and the American Black Church and evangelicals in America, because, um, you know, the Catholic Church doesn't have the kind of influence here in America that that evangelical churches have, Protestant churches have, you know, the Klan is the Klan is is a Protestant church, you know, that's that or I mean, they're a product of the Protestant church. So I think that's like a really important uh, distinction. And, you know, just just from the historical lens, the black church wasn't. It, it wasn't just the church. It was the center of the community in the same way that schools now are the center of communities. Black churches historically did everything. They that's where you went to eat. That's where you went to socialize. That's where the music was. That's that's where you went to learn. Those were those. That's where you went for for your shots. You know, reconstruction in the South was pretty much driven by the black churches. So the teachings that everybody had in the community there um, stemmed from that because they were so important to the development of black communities, definitely in the South, but, but really all throughout the nation. So um, the Catholic church has obviously it's its own set of issues when it, when it comes to this. And um you know, the, the new Pope, it seems to be a little bit, you know, he is, he's a little bit more progressive and, and definitely changed his stance, um, or the church's stance sliced slightly when it comes to the community. But, um, for, for the black communities, nothing, nothing has shaped the community more than the church. So, you know, your questions about, you know, the church and its teachings, you know, certainly if you, you couldn't exist in post-Civil War America in a Black community without being involved in the church. Um, that's lessening now, but it's still incredibly important. Um, fewer people attend church, but people still will identify themselves as, as religious. The numbers are still very, very high in the United States. You know, we live in the Northeast and, you know, you know, we live in a, in a suburban and some of us urban areas. So we don't we tend to think that people don't go to church anymore. But that's that's absolutely not what the rest of the country is doing. I think I think the last numbers that I that I read were 83 percent, I think, was the last number that I saw in the studies that I look at when I when I do this stuff, I consider themselves to be religious. 92%, the last study that I looked at when I was when we were doing the presidential elections, 92% of Americans think that it's important that the president is religious. Wow. And that's that's a staggering number, right? You know, so religion plays a tremendous point, but I think what Andrew's saying, and I think the whole point of of our podcast is is 100% right. All of the oppression in the United States 
can be traced to white supremacy. It's everything's everything's in white supremacy. Every every group that's been oppressed has been oppressed by the white power structure. And there's there's no denying that. There's no way you can argue that. And it 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 seeps into everything, right? There's there's plenty of people that would try, but I agree with you. Yeah, I <laughs> yeah, of course. There's plenty of individuals that would try to argue that, but no, of of course, of course, truth is truth, and and denial is denial, right? Um. Anyway, to just to kind of finish finish what I was saying, so I think I think I think Andrew is is as a hundred percent correct that you know if you study any any of the any of the oppression, the racism, the homophobia, the whatever, the anti-Semitism, it, it's all because groups are trying to make themselves feel superior to some other group. You know, poor whites had at least slaves that were worse off than them, you know, and, and white supremacy, therefore, you know, w- was such a huge part, part of our uh, part of our history. So I, I, I think that's it, you know. Um, I don't know. I know. I know. I rambled a little bit, but I think I. I think I answered. No, the you. You one hundred percent answered uh, the question with with great insights. That those numbers that you pulled out were news to me. So thank you for uh, for sharing that. Sure. One thing I wanted to touch on before we we made some closing points. Sydney brought up a, a interesting point about the interpretation of the Bible. It kind of made me think about how the Constitution is interpreted by um, you know Supreme Court justices, and and there's arguments that justices actually write the law because they because of their interpretation and, and their role and then that's a whole side of a conversation how someone's interpretation or a group of people's interpretation at a particular time in history can kind of shape everything we do without ever even having a real say or a true understanding and why we believe certain things or, or adhere to certain things i think is just very fascinating yeah, can I yeah, can I just quote this? Can I quote this North Texas Daily article because I really like this quote talking about um like in 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 regards to how people the interpretation of the Bible and and how that is at the center the 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 focal point. You are not allowed to quote them, Sydney. Okay, listen, let me just cuz I like this quote. Okay, so this um so the North Texas Daily article that Malik sent me that's um titled Homophobia's Dark Presence in the Black Community. Um, I pulled this quote about in the section about the church and its influence and, you know, the Bible. And um, the quote says the church served as a spiritual, spiritual vessel that socially and psychologically empowered black Americans during and after American chattel slavery. Um, They, meaning black people, uh, found solace in the literal interpretation of the Bible to defend um, homophobia. And so, yeah, you know, I just like that quote. Throw that in there. No, it's 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 fitting. Um, you know, we kind of did a high level uh, crash course on a lot of different topics that, as all of us said, could be individual podcasts in the in and of themselves, um, which I'm sure we're not opposed to doing because intersectionality should be a, a, a series that we 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 kind of run with. But I guess in terms of closing re- remarks and principles that I wanted to discuss, uh, the concept of intersectionality. Logically, for example, I'm I'm black. Andrew belongs to the LGBTQ community. Logically, we should be aligned against oppression across the board. It's kind of illogical for me to be homophobic or Andrew to be racist, or you can plug in any variation of any other oppressed group. Um, so I think that's kind of the most powerful thing about learning and, and speaking about intersectionality and, and kind of exposing certain issues that you know, we may have more in common than than we might believe prior to having a conversation. So I, I think I just wanted to bring that up and, and discuss how powerful it is to, you know, align. Right. Because, you know, I in, in doing so, it, it in, in fostering that power and in doing that, it it's it makes it um, at least somewhat easier or it makes it more tangible for us, for for those groups to tackle the bigger issues of how homophobia affects our society and the media and the government and laws and healthcare, et cetera, and on and on. And like it, that's, that is a great starting point in tackling and really changing and tackling these issues is recognizing that there's power in numbers and that um, using that in a positive way to make real change is what we're all just trying to get everyone to do. Like everyone just, we want, we're trying to move forward. We're trying to progress 
um, and 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 create a society that for everyone to live in safely and happily and everything like that. So, a threat to justice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Oh, we love it. That was so greatly timely. That was great. I I mean, you brought up the idea of pulling out quotes, so. <laughs> but it holds true. Uh, that sentiment holds true, um, and I think that's something that all of us um, should adopt, especially if we're individuals that are challenging and fighting particular uh, social plights. I, I don't think it's logical or morally sound to cherry pick. But um, with with all that said, Andrew, uh, I think this was great. Um, we should definitely continue to have. Yeah, we should definitely continue to have dialogue and conversations, continue to talk through the uh, differences and the similarities between uh, Black oppression and and the the oppression of the LGBTQ community. Because, I mean, I I said it before, just a lot of the things and challenges that you were discussing, it may be different people, but it's the same issue. And how you were um, eloquating that it stems from the same place. It was was very helpful for me to just listen to uh, everyone's perspective. So thank you. Oh, well, thank you guys so much for having me. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Andrew, um, for being, yeah, for your insight, um, for being so candid. I, I, yeah, I really did enjoy this discussion. I think it was very insightful right. to myself and everyone and everyone who list, is listening, hopefully, agrees. <laughs> thank you. I, I would say I want to leave you guys with this thought, but I think that, and this kind of just came to me, but I think that our oppressors, you know, obviously they're common, we have common oppressors, and they want us to not see ourselves alike, you know, like they want us divided, and they want us to not be able to put these pieces together. So I think, hopefully, um, as more and more people begin to realize, you know, like what we're saying, that all, all these things are kind of connected, I think once that happens, they really won't stand a chance. I, I think what Andrew's saying is is uh, is so on point. You know, I, I know I've been a little cliche with talking about building allies, but allies are so important and and groups joining together are so important. And and I agree with him a hundred percent that our oppressors are the same. I, I I absolutely believe that to be true. You know, the people that put swastikas on my temple are the same people that are that are abusing you guys and they're the same people that are that are going after the, the LGBTQ community. They're, they're the same people. So the more that we can come together and have nights like this and talk like this and build coalitions, it, the better off we're all going to be. So I also, you know, Andrew, your insight was fantastic. It, it really was. And I really appreciate you being here tonight. Thank you for listening to the Discriminology Podcast. Be sure to subscribe and to follow us on Instagram at Discriminology underscore podcast or on Facebook at Discriminology 3. Until next time, peace.